We'll be in Luke Luke chapter 2, and when you look at Luke chapter 2, you may be figuring that we're starting to uh, look at a Christmas passage, but let me just uh, tell you that we're not starting Christmas early this year. So put your Christmas playlist away, and uh, and we're still, still before Thanksgiving, so you can play all your Thanksgiving songs, which we don't have any playlists of those, so I guess you'll just start your Christmas list anyways. Luke chapter 2, as we think about it, is often thought about as a Christmas uh, passage, and the chapter is sometimes just thought of only during Christmas time. And as I preach through the book of Luke, I want to actually think about it in a little bit of a different light. We'll sometimes celebrate all the things that go on uh, during Christmas, but we miss the overall picture of the chapter. Luke chapter 2 is, is a critical in the book for what Luke is trying to do. Really, uh, Luke is trying to establish the credibility of Jesus. And we saw that in chapter 1. And we see that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke specifically says, I'm trying to give you certainty. And he's talking to Theophilus. And he's trying to say, I have, there's certainty, which means that you can trust it. You can believe it. And that's what he's trying to do here. In chapter 1, he really gave us a resume of John the Baptist, the background of John the Baptist, and he, and he gave us the birth announcement story of Jesus, but it was really a resume of G, uh, John the Baptist saying John the Baptist can be trusted and he can be followed uh, to be, be showing us a Savior. And now we're going to look at the resume of Jesus is really what's going on in chapter 2. The resume of Jesus so that we see this is the Messiah, this is the Savior that we should follow. Some of you have filled out many resumes in your life. Some of you may be just getting started filling out a resume, or you may have never done that. may have been a long time ago, last time you filled out a resume. But when you look at a resume, and when you're looking even as an employer, and you're looking at an employee possibly trying to hire one, you're looking for a few things on there. You want to see that person's skills. You want to see their education, their background, their experience, kind of where they're from, and where the potential is for where they're going in your company. And then, on some resumes, you also have to put a purpose statement. Why do you do or why do you believe the things that you believe? Especially if you're in ministry and we would hire teachers or something like that, they would have to put, what is a philosophy of ministry? In this chapter, we're going to see some of this resume of Jesus, his background, where he's from, what's going on, and what makes him credible as a Savior. And so we see the purpose of, and then we're going to see at the very end of this, a purpose statement for Jesus and why he does what he does. First off, we'll look at the outline, and there'll be an outline on the screen, and that'll just stay up there, and that hopefully is at least a guide for where we're going. And uh, if you want some more notes on this afterwards, be uh, totally fine to help you out with that. We want to look at verses 1 through 7, and we're going to realize that God will accomplish his plan in his time. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to realize that God will accomplish his plan in his time. Let me read that as you read, uh, as you see it there in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage, lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. We see immediately here, we're introduced to Caesar Augustus. Really, if you would think about this, he's the most powerful man in the world. In fact, some would consider the Caesar a god. The Roman world uh, would be looking out and he would be saying, let everybody come to be registered. And this registration is a big deal for him because he sees how many subjects and people he has. It's really a census. And, and I say it's important, not because of what I say, but because of what the text says. If you look in verses 1 through 5, you see registered is mentioned four times. This was a critical thing in this chapter. The reason it's critical is that it gives us a couple, under, a couple things for us to remember. First, the Jews during this time, they were under rule from a foreign government. They weren't in control of what's going on. Second, the Jews, uh, we see this registration actually helps us give a timing for Jesus' birth. Now, when Luke sets this up, remember, he's giving us certainty. And so he's saying, here is when Jesus was born. And he sets up the parameters for this. And third, this tells us that God will use and or will bring the Messiah to Bethlehem. And this is, happens because of a census. And God orchestrates all these things together to start fulfilling prophecies. We see this most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, saying, uh, saying that he's going to give a census or a registration, and then it goes to Quinarius, uh, Quinarius uh, who's a ruler locally, and then it goes to Joseph, and then we filter down to Mary, and then to a baby. We look at the most powerful man in the world to really the most innocent creature or person uh, possible. We see this kind of level of understanding that Jesus, coming into this world, humbled himself to start at a low estate, at a beginning, as a baby. Incredibly, we see all this set up, God's timing, setting this all up, and we see some critical things here. Even in, in these verses, we see Joseph's line. And these things aren't just mentioned in the Bible for no reason. And so when you're reading, you see this and you understand there's a lot going on here. And, and today I can't cover every aspect of it, but there's a lot going on. And we see Joseph's lineage is given. And the reason for that is so that we understand that Jesus is coming from the line of David so that he has the right lineage to be on King David's throne. But he comes from a very poor family, and we know that throughout this passage, and we're going to see that over and over. We're going to see even, we see in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus humbled himself and came to this earth, and he submitted to his parents, to the society, and he obeys God among all of this. And one of the themes that I just want to point out now as we get into Luke, and it's early on in the book, one of the things that you're going to notice throughout Luke is that the poor are mentioned all the time. Jesus comes to the poor. He comes as a poor person. His family is going to be seen as poor. And his whole status is going to people that are outcasts and rejects and poor people. It should be a note for us and a thought that we should be engaged with people in our community that may not be of the status of middle class and above. Part of who Jesus goes to would be a lower class. And the pe we're going to see that multiple times in this passage. I mean, we notice Mary, who's betrothed, or this idea of legally engaged to Joseph, I mean, she's pregnant, and they go to Bethlehem. And there's a couple of things that we see in these verses that happen. In Bethlehem, we know this from all the Christmas stories, there's no room in the inn. Now, this could be because they could not afford to get a better room, 
But really, it's probably because all these people are coming back to this one spot, to this one time, and, and all the extra places are filled up. And so Jesus is going to be born in a very humble place. Jesus, the king of the universe, is born in a stable and laid in a manger. And in verse 7, we see that Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's laid in a manger. And if you're thinking ahead, in this book, we're going to see later, another time, that our Lord and Savior was actually wrapped in cloths and laid down in a place. Not this time, not that time, though, as a baby, but as our dead Messiah that's laid in the tomb. And then Luke gives all these clues to what's going to be happening. And he sets this up so that we will believe. But King Jesus comes as a baby into this humble estate, and this time is announced. And it says in, verse, uh, in the verses there, and the time came, talking about Mary's pregnancy. And, and obviously, I mean, we, we've seen, we have a couple different babies about to be born. We have a baby just recently born, and we would s- describe that very clearly. The time came for the baby to be born. Well, that means probably a lot of contractions, a lot of pain, but a lot of joy. But it also, I think, in this, in this passage is signifying a couple things. The time came is also God's language saying, this is my time. Everything got organized and put together with my purpose and my plan, not just as a random thing. God's time and his plan happen, and sometimes we wonder. I mean, as Pastor read in uh, Mark and very, a parallel passage, very similar in Matthew 24, we see Jesus telling us, to understand and look for the signs of the age, but also to do two things, to not be deceived and really not to be distracted. Don't be off mission. And we understand with all the chaos that's going on in the world, we sometimes can be distracted and we can sometimes be deceived. Let me encourage you, don't be off mission. Should we be looking and wondering what's going to happen in the world, especially with things going on in Israel? Sure. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Don't get deceived. Stay on mission. Because one thing that we learn from this passage is that God's plan and God's purpose is going to happen in his time with the people that he chooses. If God could get a pregnant teenage Israelite girl into Bethlehem at the right time, at the right place in all of history to bring about his Savior, I'm certain he can do that for whatever he plans for our future. So we just understand that our job is to share Christ. I don't know how I can influence anything that's going on 7,400 miles away from the Rio Grande Valley other than pray and be concerned, but I do know that there are people that are with our, in our community within 5 to 10 miles of this church that would be much better served if I would care for them, pray for them, share the gospel with them, give them a ride in my car, text them, and say, how can I minister to you because of Christ? And I would be better off doing that than necessarily spending the rest of my life fretting about what's going on in the rest of the world and about things that I cannot control and cannot handle. God has a plan, and he will accomplish it. And your plan, part of your purpose in God's plan, is right here in this community in the Rio Grande Valley to serve the people around you, to reach out, to share Christ, to share the good news of Jesus and what he's done. Let me encourage you to trust that God's plan will be accomplished in his time. We're going to go to the second scene in this chapter, and we're going to look at verse 8. And we see God's plan and this purpose and Jesus being in the right place at the right time, not 
because of him being such an incredible baby, but God being an incredible God setting him up. But now we're going to learn of the Savior, and we're going to see that when we learn of the Savior, learning the Savior should lead to praising God. And look in verse 8. It says this, and we'll read this, these next uh, 12 verses to verse 20. In the same region there were shepherds out on the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that he had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the second scene in this chapter. If we were looking at it, this would be the second section of the resume of Jesus. We would see the different things that are set up. We see that he's coming from the right place at the right time. He should, he's meeting these qualifications as a Savior. And then we have an announcement by an angel. And remember, in this book, we've already seen an angel make an announcement a couple times. We saw it in chapter 1 to Zechariah and to Mary. And we see that God's word, even though it had been silent for over 400 years, it's now starting to ramp up. We are hearing from God and from his people, from the angels, from prophets, and we're hearing from them over and over again in chapter 1 and 2. God's timing is, I mean, his plan is getting going in his time. We look at this, and who did these angels, this angel appear to? Well, these lowly shepherds. Shepherds in this society were, in some sense, not necessarily outcasts, but they were outside of the norm of society. They smelled, they stunk, they weren't really looked upon as the highest of the highest. And you may say, well, why would you say that? I'd just say, look, you remember there was a guy named David, and he was actually a king, but before that he was a shepherd, actually in Bethlehem. And what did everybody think of him? Well, nobody thought of him. They're looking for the sons to say, hey, hey, do you have any more sons? No, this is all of them. Oh, no, 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 there's, there's another one. There's David. Oh, yeah, that guy. Shepherd boy. Despised. Not thought of as very high and mighty. And here the angels come. Another pe- section of this pas- passage, another spot in Luke that we see God's coming to those despised, the outcast, the lowly, the rejected. And he gives him, these shepherds, an incredible announcement. And he says, I come to you and I bring you good news. And the word good news, with this, with this idea of euangelion, or this idea of a, an announcement, and it's used in two ways. And we think about it in, in a couple ways, and I think both of these kind of are an announcement. You know, if you have a birthday party, especially as a kid, you would hand out announcements. And this is kind of what's happening with this word when it says good news. The Caesar, 
Caesar Augustus or any of them that were Caesars during that time would actually have big birthday parties or an announcement that this is the birthday of the Caesar or your king of the God. But in the Israelite society or the Jewish society, there was also a way that this word was used to announce good news as in salvation coming to Israel. And I think very clearly, both of these are being used by Luke. There is a king that was born, and his birth is being announced. And there's also a savior that's coming. This good news is for salvation. And if, it, if you need any more clarity, it's in verse 11. Look in verse 11 and what he calls Jesus. He says, Jesus is a savior, the Christ, the Lord. The Caesar wouldn't have anything on this king. This is a king, King Jesus, that rules for eternity that's coming here born this day in Jerusalem or in, in Bethlehem. The three titles, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, they're both an active and passive idea. It's active because the Savior and Messiah represent a deliverer, somebody that saves, an active thing going out. But then when it talks about the Lord, it talks about somebody that should be obeyed and should be honored. And so when we look at this title, Christ uh, Savior, Christ, the Lord, this Messiah, we understand this is somebody that w- is going to save, but we should also obey. And these shepherds, it's interesting. Can you imagine these shepherds being announced? I mean, this am- amazing scene that they see, the angels, this singing, and they're told, go see him, right? And what do they do, this pack of shepherds? I'm assuming they leave their sheep. Maybe nobody gets left behind and they go- all go to it. And it's interesting, you know, if you're a shepherd, going into any nice place would probably feel uncomfortable because you'd need to clean up. But where do they go? They go into a manger. They go to a place that they may feel right at home with all the other animals, and they see the Savior. Incredibly, our God came to the lowly, to the outcast, to the forsaken, and they're right at home. And they announce to Mary all that they've heard. And they re- their response is immediately praise to God. They immediately praise this Messiah. This, this, this lowly Messiah is being praised. Now, don't forget, when we're Christians, we're really just one beggar showing another beggar how to find bread. When we realize what God has done for us, we will understand that we are coming from a place that is desperately concern, or consumed by sin. And when he redeems us, our response should be to look out and say, I want to see other people that are in that same state as I was to be redeemed by this God that's so incredible. And when we understand that, and we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, it should lead to praise. It should lead to thanksgiving. And that's what these shepherds do. They praise God, and they go to Mary and Joseph, and they tell these things, and Mary kind of puts them in the back of her mind. And we're going to see this throughout Luke. She's pondering these things. She's thinking about it. Well, very clearly, the response that we should have to the Savior is praising him. Let's look on to the next scene in this. And this scene is going to show us in chapter, or in chapter 2, verse 21, that we know that Jesus is the one who rescues and redeems. Jesus is getting announced. This resume, all these things are being put down. If you're typing out the resume, you're going to say, born in the right place at the right time, I've been called the Savior, I've been praised by angels, but I also am coming to the lowly, just like Isaiah said over and over he would do. Look in verse 21. 
kind of a kind of a verse that connects verse 20 to 22. Verse 21 kind of fills in the gap of a couple things. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name by the, uh, given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In verse 21, we see very clearly that the parents obey, right? They called, they said, call this, this boy Jesus. They call him Jesus, and Jesus means the Lord saves. I mean, on his resume, Jesus Christ, the Lord saves, the Messiah that redeems. I mean, that's the, that's the title of the guy that's putting his name down on this resume. This is the guy that we can trust. Let's keep reading in verse 22. When the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said, uh, said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit, uh, into, the, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have, been, you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation of Gentiles and for the glory to your uh, people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, his child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through his, your own soul also, so that thoughts from many... Uh, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let me stop there, and we'll pick up with Anna in just a moment. We see this verse, in verse 22, the two things are very clear. Joseph, there's, there's a lot of talking about the law and what's going on here. And one thing I think that we want to be, we see that Luke is emphasizing, and not to look over, is that Mary and Joseph are a family that honors God. They are obedient to God. They're raising this child to be honored to God. They're setting him apart in a way that we would look back and see that Samuel was set apart in 1 Samuel, and his mom, Hannah, set Samuel apart. We see this throughout Scripture. And very clearly, Mary and Joseph are obedient to the Lord. He's coming from a family that's obedient from the Lord. But then we're also introduced to Simeon. And if you looked at this reference that you're putting together, or this resume that you're putting together, usually you put some names, some references, right? Uh, hey, you can call this guy, right? I always tell the teenagers, look, if I'm filling out a reference for you or you're filling out a resume, you can put my name on there. I, look, I know your mom and dad probably aren't a good reference because they've seen how you clean the dishes, but I haven't. So I'll just say that you do a good job at it, right? And so you put somebody on there that you trust, you know? But this is a real guy, Simeon, that's very trustworthy, put here as a reference. Simeon is told, or we're told that Simeon is righteous and devout, and he's been waiting on the consolation, or we would call this like the paraclesis, this comfort of Israel. The righteous Holy Spirit man was granted an incredible promise. I remember being asked about this in a junior high group, a small group setting. They asked something like, was Simeon given like the fountain of youth? I mean, you know, Ponce de Leon would have loved to find what Simeon had. He was never going to die until he saw the Savior Messiah. 
I don't know how that played out. I don't know how old Simeon was, but he was an older man. But he knew that God had given them this blessing, that he would see the Redeemer. Simeon goes and he scoops up baby Jesus in his arms. You can just imagine this man's emotions. You can just hear it in the words that he says. He says it in verse 29. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I mean, can you imagine this man? Righteous, devout, given this incredible promise, looking for the Savior, and he sees him and he recognizes him right away. He recognizes this Jesus, and he says, and he scoops him up, this Jesus, he's the one that's going to save. Simeon refers to Jesus as salvation. And he says, I mean, incredibly in verse 20, uh, 32, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This Jewish man that's righteous and devout, saying the Gentiles are going to have access, praise God, into this. And Luke is going to write a whole book about this. He's, he writes another volume called Acts that one day maybe we'll get to look at. And he writes this book called Acts, and that's all about, really, the apostles going out to the, all the world, and especially to the Gentiles. But right here at Jesus' birth, it's clear he's going out. And you know what? Isaiah and all Old Testament, Old Testament prophets said this one, this Messiah, would one day go to all the world. He would be a blessing to all people, to all nations. And for Simeon, he looks at Jesus and he says, I have seen your salvation. Don't miss this. What Simeon is saying is this. To see Jesus is to see salvation. To see Jesus is to see salvation. And Mary and Joseph are amazed. They ponder this again. They think about this. But there's also some sobering news. I mean, you're a mom and dad getting this news and hearing this. You've had the shepherds visit you. You now have this righteous, godly man, Simeon, making a proclamation. But he says something, a couple things to mom and dad. And he says, you're going to see firsthand the suffering. You're going to see some firsthand suffering of Jesus. And you're going to see how this son of yours is going to divide the nation. I mean, there's some incredible news. We've been introduced to the gospel in this passage, but the cross is also in view. I mean, there's always this view of the cross in Luke. It's like we're looking ahead and Luke knows what's going to happen. And Mary and Joseph are just pondering this. But Jesus is already on a mission and his life is going to be spent for us. And hearing that as a mom and dad, obviously, would probably give you concern. But they're a faithful family, and they trust God. Let's look down in verse 36. We're going get, to get to Anna and see this. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven, uh, seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, it's an interesting character. You see another resume. But Anna's coming from a resume, or putting, putting a reference on this resume, and it's not from a person that you might expect. It's a lady, for one, which in Israel and in this time, a lady wouldn't be necessarily thought of as a great source of reliability. But she is, she's a prophetess. And she comes from the tribe of Asher, which is sometimes thought of as an outcast or maybe one of the tribes that are just kind of just out there, but not a key tribe of Israel. And in fact, it's very possible that her background 
is from a background of like a Samaritan, is almost like a half-breed Jew, like somebody that's in a mixed marriage. And in this time, and you know from stories in the Bible, the Samaritans and the Jews often didn't get along. And so Anna's mention here is a little bit out of the ordinary, but she's mentioned, I think for us to understand that Jesus is coming to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and to everybody. This is a savior for all of them. And Anna has been fasting. And you know, fasting is, what, what it means is that she's not been eating, or she, she doesn't eat at a, at a point, and she prays. She gives up a meal or something. And fasting, really, what it is, is constitute a form of protest. If you would fast before God, you're protesting in some sense, and you're saying, God, everything is not well. I'm praying to you so that things would get better or things would change. And so she's really praying and protesting that God would change and make things right. And when she sees Christ, she sees the Redeemer. She sees redemption. And and Simeon and Anna both make this connection. When they recognize Jesus, they recognize the Redeemer. When they see Jesus, they see salvation. And so I just ask this, and I want to throw this out there. If you know who Jesus is, have you trusted him? To see Jesus and understand him is to trust him and follow him for salvation. And if you know him, you should also proclaim him. Simeon and Anna and the angels, as soon as they learn about who Jesus is, their first response is not to go hide, but it actually is to go and tell everybody about Jesus. Sometimes our response is to say, we have a good thing, we have Jesus, let's hide him in our congregation in these four walls and not talk about it. Our job is to proclaim Jesus to the nations. When we recognize him, we should proclaim him. Let's read this last, let's look at this last scene in verse 40. And we're going to see how Jesus prioritized obedience to the Father. We're going to see that in this final section in verse 40 through 52. It says in verse 40, another connector verse between 39 and 41. But it says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You hear that verse, and you're going to hear almost the exact same verse in verse 52. Now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. He was 12 years old, and they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have, you treated, uh, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And, we, and when he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And we see verse 40, as I said, it transitions this section, helps us see Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of years in gap, uh, a gap year, right? I mean, there's 12 years here that we see uh, Jesus, and uh, there's, it goes off the scene after being an eight-year-old baby in the temple with Anna and Simeon. 12 years pass, and we see one, continual th- one uh, theme that's continuing. Mary and Joseph are faithful, godly uh, parents. They're trying to bring up Jesus in a way that honors God. 
And, and they're bringing him to the feast of the Passover, as they do yearly. And so we see on the resume of Jesus, he's got godly parents, he follows the law, and he goes and he does what his parents ask of him. But it's interesting, when they're at the feast of Passover, Jesus, this young preteen boy, stays behind. And, you know, if I left my kids behind at like main event or top golf or some place that they really enjoyed, I could understand because they're stuck playing video games and I forget them. Jesus isn't stuck at top golf or stuck at main event or someplace playing video games. Jesus is in the temple talking to the leaders and his parents go a day's journey. 20 miles is approximately probably what they went. That's a long day's walking. And as they're thinking, well, Jesus isn't with us. Our son's somewhere off, probably with his friends, hanging out in some group, and probably like we would think as our kids are sometimes off doing whatever. Oh, somebody else has got him. Oh, he's with this group. And they get that evening and realize Jesus isn't there. They probably look around, kind of get a little frantic. The next day, they head back a whole other day's journey back to Jerusalem, day two. Probably spent a whole day in Jerusalem looking. And this is day three. And they're frantic in some sense, really worried about where your kids are. And Mary's response to Jesus, her question, probably is understandable. I'm not quite sure. I mean, moms, I'm not sure what your response would be to your son if you hadn't found him for three days and he was just back somewhere where you left him. And he, you know, you probably maybe say more than Mary did. And he's there and they find him in the temple. And he's been with the teachers. He's been with the leaders. He's been talking about, he's actually been listening and asking questions, and then he's obviously been talking a little bit because they hear him and are amazed. And just get this, these teachers are mentioned here in the book, and the teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees that are going to be mentioned later in the book, they don't seem like a threat right now. 12-year-old Jesus isn't really a threat. When you see a 12-year-old kid asking you questions about the gospel, asking you questions about the law, asking you questions about anything, you're like, hey, I'll tell you all the answers. They're not a threat. 30-year-old, full-grown Jesus starts saying these same things that amazed people about the law, and all of a sudden it was a threat, and they're going to want to kill him. But right now, it's crazy. They're like, wow, this kid's really smart. may not think much of it. But Mary and Joseph, are great, they're in great distress, and they ask him, what's been going on? And Jesus answers in a way that's very interesting. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I'm not sure how a kid would answer this today, but they might be like, bruh, that's cap or something like that, right? And they'd be like, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I don't actually think Jesus is being disrespectful. We know that because he's sinless, but also just in a couple verses later, in verse 51, it says that Jesus was submissive. And Jesus's answer isn't some talking back to his mom saying something smart, trying to like get, gain a point. I mean, we see that, right? You, you all, your kids, sometimes, you, you grandkids, you've seen stuff, and it's like, oh, they kind of scored a point there by saying that smart aleck re- remark back to me. Jesus isn't doing that. He's actually saying something informative to his parents. He says, do you not know that I must be about my father's house? And he starts to clue them in, even at a young age, that his priority and his goal in life is to honor his father. Everything that Jesus does in his life is set as a priority to honor God above everything. Jesus is sinless in this. We know that he can't be our savior if he sinned in this, and he did not sin. And he's so, so he's giving a clue to his parents saying, 
I am on this earth for a different purpose, a different mission, and that's to praise God and honor Him. You know, there is a point for us to realize that when we follow Christ, we take up our cross and we follow Him. In fact, we are sometimes told that we may have to give up our family and our relatives, and we must love Christ more than all of them. Now, we're also told that we should care for our family and take care of them, and family is a great thing. But we as believers should understand the same priority that Jesus had should be our priority, honoring God above everything, no matter what. And there are many people that go about life that don't honor God and Christ because they're too worried about what their family thinks. They're too worried about what their parents think, what their kids think, how it's going to affect their income or their status or their inheritance. And instead of serving Christ with everything they have, they're worried about things of earth. And I think we're getting clued in here to Jesus' priority. His priority, number one, is to follow God's word and God's will. He's saying to his parents, I'm going to honor my father above everything. Not that I'm going to dishonor you, but you have to understand God is my first priority. You know, let me just make an application. Kids, don't look at this as an excuse to disobey your parents. Jesus was submissive to his parents. He was obedient. He did obey his authority. He submitted to his ruling authority, even even, uh, the rulers in that time. He paid his taxes. He did what he was supposed to. But he had a different priority. And young people, even if you're a kid, your priority should be, you should obey your parents. That's what God wants you to do. But you should realize now, your priority in life should be honoring God above everything. Young people, don't submit only when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, and when it will benefit you. Adults also, let's not look and say, I'm only going to obey God when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, when it would benefit me. You must realize that there's going to be times when we follow God, it's going to be inconvenient, it's going to be uncomfortable, and we may not see a temporal benefit. But our purpose on this earth as followers of King Jesus is to follow him with everything, even when it gets tough. Even when it's difficult, we share Christ and give, uh, give him uh, glory in what we do. We finish with verse 52. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He kept growing like any kid. He kept growing and he kept eating probably like teenagers in my house are eating, my, uh, eating us out of house and home. And you realize your budget is all of a sudden higher for your grocery bill than your mortgage. He grows in that way. But he also, very clearly, grows in wisdom. And that's mentioned a couple times. And it's, his wisdom is seen in this passage, right? He's wise. The, even the scribes that, or the teachers see he's wise. But we also see that he grows in favor with God and with man. Jesus isn't this oddball kid. He's not this weird kid that nobody knows. That is just some weird kid that is the Savior, but nobody's around him. He grows in favor with God and man. He, he gets along with people. He interacts well with people, but he honors God above everything. As we finish, we look at this resume of Jesus, and we see this as 12-year-old Jesus, and we're going to get into chapter 3 in a couple weeks, and we're going to see that Jesus is ready to roll as, his, as, as the king of this universe, as the Messiah, but he's ready to roll. He's, he's got everything he needs on the resume of being the Messiah. And so we should have certainty. We should be able to believe. We should be able to obey. And so, so what? 
What's it matter to you? You're like, oh, this is great. I understand that. Yeah, that's great. So what's it matter? Well, let me just tell you, if you're not a believer, if you're still wondering about following Jesus and trusting in him, I don't know what else evidence you need. I don't know what else we need to do to tell you how good Jesus is and what's true. Luke wrote a whole gospel to prove to you and have certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you'd want to know more about it and have questions and have issues with maybe trusting, I'd love to be able to talk to you about it. But you can trust Jesus. He is trustworthy. He is so worthy to be trusted. But so what for us as believers? Well, as believers, I think our response is pretty clear in this passage. The angels, they saw Jesus and heard about him, and they praised God. Simeon Simeon and Anna see Jesus, and they praise God, but they also start proclaiming him and telling others about it. And we see from Jesus' own example, the priority that he sets is on following God alone. We, when we recognize Jesus, we should praise him, proclaim him, and obey him over everything. And let me finish with this illustration, or this just application and illustration. There is a disease that is one of the absolute worst diseases in this world, and I absolutely hate it. It's called dementia, or Alzheimer's, right? And I'm certain that if any of you have had any interaction with somebody with Alzheimer's, would hate that disease, because there's a, there's a forgetting There's a failure to recognize. And one of the things that's tough is when you forget stuff, that feels awful at any age. But it's tough when you start forgetting family, when you start failing to recognize somebody that you should be able to recognize. When family sees it and they go to somebody and they realize they're not recognizing me, that is an awful, awful feeling. It's gut-wrenching. And I can't wait for glory and that to be gone. But you know, sometimes... We almost live in a state of spiritual dementia. We know who Christ is. We may have spent a lifetime in the Word of God, but we just simply forget about Him day after day. We forget to honor Him. We forget that our priority is in life is to recognize Him and to praise Him. And we have so many other things that just consume our lives, fill our time, and consume everything we do. And it's like we have this spiritual dementia. You're there, God, but we forget to recognize you. We forget to look at you. We forget to trust you. And I think in this passage, Luke is telling us, if you don't recognize who this is, here's his resume. He is your Savior. And his beginning, his life, his end, and even into eternity, he's worthy to be trusted. It is worth it. If you recognize Jesus, if you know him, then obey him and follow him. Let's pray. Father, it is just a blessing to be able to have a copy of the Word of God in our hands, to read the full Scripture. And Lord, I mean, it is incredible that you would give us uh, even the opportunity to live in this day, that we can use a computer or our phone or whatever it is to look at the whole Bible, to just read everything in such a book that we can hold in our hands. Lord, the fact that we can look in the Old Testament, we can read the prophet Micah, We can look at Isaiah, and we can look at all the different prophecies that are fulfilled in the book of Luke and even in this one chapter. And Lord, for thousands of years, you prepared the way for Jesus to come at the right time, at the right place. And Lord, so many failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And it is just going to be heartbreaking to go through this book to see so many people that rejected you. But Lord, as we look at it, I pray that, Lord, we would not be among those people that reject you 
that we would see that you are truly the Son of God. And that as we look at this and we see the background that you came from, all the things that set you up as the Messiah and to move forward, as we read these things, Lord, I pray that it would affirm and confirm in our heart the truth that you are our God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be distracted by the things of this world. That as Jesus, even as a young boy, knew that he needed to be about his father's business, that he needed to know and to do your will. I pray, Lord, that we would spend time in the Word so that we would know, we, know your will and that we would spend time in our life to do your will. Lord, we thank you that we can see Jesus. And Lord, that when we see Jesus, we can have salvation. Lord, it is so good that you have given us this promised Messiah and that we can trust and obey him. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation, for the people here. Encourage them, Lord, with your word and with the message today. Help them to see that it is worth it to follow King Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.